back. Welcome back to the Wages of Cinema. And uh, the thing that you just didn't hear was the whistling from the theme of uh, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show. Uh, I don't know why you disliked that so much. Was uh, it so forced? I don't know if it's going to sound good in, on the recording. I'll have to listen to how it sounded. Maybe it will sound okay. So all this might be in vain. All this might be in vain, indeed. But Alfred Hitchcock... Alfred Hitchcock. When, once you become a film fan, you cannot get away from Alfred Hitchcock. No, and even before you're a fan, like become a fan of him, he's just kind of permeates uh, the you know the world of cinema because. Uh, you know, at a certain age, you know, when I was about 13, uh, actually my parents sh- showed me Psycho. Um, <laughs> I think probably maybe they, they were afraid I'd watch it on my own or something. I'm not sure. I think they liked the movie so much that they just wanted to show it to me. I forget if it was my mom or dad, but one of them showed me Psycho. Well, either way, your parents showed you Psycho and I had to search it out for myself. So your parents were cooler than my parents. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> also, I think when I was younger... On the Stars Channel, they used to play this documentary about Alfred Hitchcock, and it wasn't that deep, but it gave you a pretty quick, you know, good rundown of a lot of his famous movies, and also him as a personality. Which, when you're a stuff. kid, is basically all you need. Yeah, I mean, that, then, you know, again, this was in the age before you could go on YouTube and just type in Alfred Hitchcock interview and get, like... 90-minute master's class interview things with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had to take what I could get. And and speaking of interviews, we're talking about a very interesting book today. Yes, in part of the required reading uh, that I wanted to sort of merge into our main topic just, today. Just so you know, you don't have to read anything. Well, no. Don't no make, it, it's not like a class. When don't, we say required reading, it's, it's not like, yeah, I don't want this to sound too academic. And actually, but the thing is with this book... I would say, and, I'm, and by the book, I mean the book Hitchcock by Truffaut. It's also called Hitchcock Truffaut. Um, this was a series of interviews done in the 1960s uh, by the French filmmaker Francois Truffaut. Um, he was a huge, huge Hitchcock fan, as was everyone else in I got the feeling in the French that he was a huge Hitchcock he, fan. Not only that, it's like Just he's by known the way everything. He, yeah. He he has a, a nerd's encyclopedic knowledge of of Hitchcock films. Now, yeah, and to the point where he's also read many of the books that uh, inspired uh, Hitchcock movies. Um, he and it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, he, he always doesn't look favorably on them. But what brought me to this was as I talked about in the movie two minute movie mile, uh, I saw The Birds again, and just seeing that. You know, I'll, I'll see a movie every once in a while, and I've seen it several times in my life. But just seeing it again, it will suddenly get me really enthusiastic to go back and look at stuff that I've seen about a creative person or a director. That's yeah. how with Orson Welles, you know, when I saw a couple of his movies, then I was like, all right, I want to revisit Orson Welles stuff. I'm doing and a similar thing this week with David Lynch. That's cool. That's going to be quite a week. Oh, yeah. You're going to really go deep on that one. Uh, but, uh, that's all, no, David Lynch is one for me too. I, I love revisiting stuff with Lynch and, uh, uh, Scorsese and, um, Boonwell. I would love to do more Boonwell stuff. He doesn't do a lot of, he doesn't have a lot of videos online, but he does have print stuff. He hasn't posted in a really long time. No, I mean, he once said that he'd like to rise from the grave every once every few decades to read some newspapers, but that hasn't happened lately. Well, <laughs> that's one of his going out of business anyway. The point is, though, this book, Hitchcock Truffaut, it's often cited as being one of 
the movie books too, because you know, and you can also if if because, you're interested. You know. Well, thanks for pointing that out. It is. Uh, I, here, it's basically here, like the handbook on Hitchcock. It's I, the handbook on Hitchcock. They go wanna... through. They go through every single movie he made. Um, there's audio interviews available online. If you Google Hitchcock Truffaut audio interviews, you'll find links to sites where they feature uh, links to all of the interviews. Granted, the, the interesting thing in that, when you hear the audio as opposed to reading in the book, you hear the, the Truffaut didn't speak English. He only spoke French. So they had to he have spoke a translator. Very little English. I don't know. I don't think he spoke any English um, at, at this he time. He certainly anyway. wasn't. He wasn't versed uh, enough to carry on a conversation in no. English. So you had this translator, and um, it, it gave Hitchcock time, I think, to give his answers. But at the same time, he was a very he he didn't he wasn't a fast talker. Gave him time to eat. <laughs> hey, that's not he, nice. Come on, he, he obviously <laughs> I know he he's obviously is eating during this interview. Do you think so? Yeah. Huh. I'm very I'm not er- sure if I caught very that. early on in the first f- in the first six uh, interview clips. I mean, it's obvious that they have dishes and uh, Hitchcock is chewing on things. Mm. Fortunately, it's not obnoxious. But let's no. get on to what we're really here about. Well, in this book, again, it 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 starts from uh, childhood, and it go it ta- sort of talks about the famous story of Hitchcock. Uh, being taken, I think, by his dad to the police station, or he was basically being th- like his father was trying to th- instill the threat. He was of trying the to threat, frighten him into being good. He got locked yeah. up in a cell. He got but uh, what's in? Yeah, he got know, locked up. Like that. Oh, that's right. And then so, he came, and then he, he got locked up in a cell and got like let go just like a yeah. few later. <laughs> but it, it permanently instilled a fear of the police in Hitchcock's head. Yeah, and uh, from then on, then he. I've even read. I read a Hitchcock biography a couple years ago uh, called "A Life in Darkness and Light," and it's a, it's pretty long, but it's really fascinating and how that experience really did affect him for the rest of his life to the point where, if he was in a car being driven, if like he heard police sirens, he'd immediately tense up and look around to see what was going on, even though you know he obviously wasn't doing anything. But I sometimes have to think that worked its way into his movies. Times again, and the thing with Hitchcock, he well, policemen don't, uh, uh policemen and authorities are generally, uh, they try to be helpful, no, not but not in a lot of cases. Like, think <laughs> about know. North by Northwest, mm. or uh, you know, where and even I'd say probably Spellbound, huh, uh, yeah, so you, I, you I generally have uh, men and women on the run who, mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, who can't afford to, uh, draw the the, the uh, attention of the police. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I think, yeah, no, no, definitely. It, it depends. Actually, and I confess, the movie that I was talking about uh, in the last segment, that actually, Carl Malden does play one of the rare helpful police officers. Or, he's he's actually, he's the closest thing to somebody who's trying to be believe in rationality and putting pieces together in a case you know, whereas, you know, you there's have a, a similar, priest. There's and... a similar character in Dial M for Murder, the detective. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The, the detective in that story is very methodical. He's very much trying to just put together the details of this crime, uh, you know, that's been enacted. Um, so, Hitchcock Truffaut is... I, the thing it, about basically, this book... I feel like 
Everything I've heard about Hitchcock probably came from this book. A he lot talks of about did. he talks about uh, what what a MacGuffin is. He talks about what is suspense. The famous story of two men sitting at a cafe cafe table with a bomb underneath it. Uh, the very definition of suspense. He talks about um, which, if you're really tired of movies nowadays with full of jump scares and uh, explosions, uh, this will probably come as a breath of fresh air for most the, of you. The the mis the misappropriated quote: uh, "All actors are cattle." I don't know if you've ever heard about that. Uh, and I'll even read a quote: "How uh, a few years uh, a few years prior to my arrival in Hollywood, I had been quoted as saying that all actors are cattle." I'm not quite sure in what context I might have used that such a statement. It may have been made in the early days of talkies in England when we used actors who were simultaneously performing in stage plays. When they had a matinee, they'd leave the set. I felt much too early for a matinee. I felt much too early for a matinee, and I suspected they were allowing themselves plenty of time for a very leisurely lunch. And this meant that we had to shoot our scenes at breakneck speed so that the actors could get out on time. I couldn't help feeling that if they'd been really conscientious, they'd have swallowed their sandwich in the cab on the way to the theater and get there in time to put on their makeup and go on stage. I had no use for that kind of actor. Another reason for resentment is that I'd sometimes overhear two actresses talking in a restaurant. One would say to the other, What are you doing now, dear? And the other one would say, Oh, I'm filming, in the same tone of voice as if you're saying, Oh, I'm slumming. And this raises a grievance I have against those people who'd come into our industry by way of the theater or writers who work in our medium for the money. I only think of the worst culprits are the writers. Man, that's that's a sad bit. But um, <laughs> I, he goes on and on. But he 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 sort of talks about that and how um, uh, Carol Lombard was this actress, and she kind of played this practical joke. Like she he directed a movie uh, called Mr. and Mrs. Smith. No relation to the Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie movie. Huh. Um, this is a screwball comedy. One of the few non-thrillers that Hitchcock made. And on the set, I think it was, I don't know if it was near the start of production or near the end of production, but she actually arranged on set, as a practical joke against Hitchcock, an entire bullpen full of cattle. <laughs> because he had a statement that he said actors are cattle. And later he clarified this and said, you know, I can't believe somebody said even thought that I said that. That'd be it's really insensitive. What I meant to say is that actors should be treated like cattle. Yeah. <laughs> Completely different. <laughs> I I get what he's trying to say that you know, if you're on set you need to move people around. Right. I think that the interesting thing with me re revisiting this book and revisiting the audio interviews is the, is that the other sense Hitchcock was really in love with cinema. And just like the technical, what you could do with a camera to tell a story and how to put people in a certain space and to put people in a certain mindset. You know, he was all about trying to orchestrate the emotional responses of the audience. Like, I think, I don't know if it was in the book, but he, I think he was once quoted as saying that at some point he wanted cinema to get to a point where he could just flip a switch and immediately turn something on in a person's mind without having to go through the mechanics of having to shoot a film. Because he didn't really enjoy being on set shooting, like, film. He for, To him, really, the it was writing and creating the storyboards and the actual preparation. That was, like, making the movie for him. Huh. By the time he got to set, he was just like, okay, let's... So, uh... <laughs> Not really an actor's director. I mean, well... 
it was interesting because he was one of those act- well there are other directors like that in the industry like john houston was one who um actors would actually sometimes get a little nervous where they thought they were doing something wrong because hitchcock wouldn't talk to them and i've read where one or two people i think on north by northwest uh martin landau uh thought he was doing something wrong because he saw uh, hitchcock talking to Cary grant and even Marie saint and james mason about something and I think the camera too. And Martin Landon went up to him and was like, uh, am I, uh, is something wrong? I see you're talking with them a lot. And Hitchcock told him, if I'm talking to you, that means there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, it's like, you're doing a good job, Martin. Just be cool. Now get out. Get out. And be nasty. But, um, yeah, I mean, what, it's, what else can you really say about Hitchcock that hasn't been said by... You know, the countless film scholars and critics over the years. I mean, Hitch, True Fuzz right. is one of the them. the end. Have a good night, everybody. Good night, Broadcast everybody. over. I love his quote about plausibility. What was his quote he about He talked about, uh, in, so in many, a lot of his films... He has films, so many wonderful quotes in this book. He talks about, well, uh, let's take a film like by like North by Northwest. Yes. Where Cary Grant's character, he gets wrapped up in this web of intrigue. Yeah. Uh through very unfortunate coincidences, like they happen to mistake him for the for a, for an agent, uh, he uh, they kill a guy when he just happens to be there. Uh, so in so he is uh, he's on the run for things he didn't commit or or even has any idea about. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cary Grant goes through that movie not knowing anything basically <laughs> there, until there, the there, end. There's like double crosses upon double crosses. He's being played by both the law and the spies. And, like, he's being mistaken for a guy that never existed. Yeah. So, people are saying, well, this isn't really plausible. I, but he didn't care about ha- it. And he says, well, plausibility has... Uh, people who say that really have no use for me. Because if you <laughs> want something that's plausible, why, go see a documentary. Mm, yes, I he did th- say that. I see real things. But if you limit yourself to what's plausible then really you don't have much to go on. And that's where a lot of his genius came in, was kind of embracing more fantastical elements within his own kind of world that he was making yeah. in terms of cinema. I mean, because a lot of Hitchcock films are about a time when a regular person who isn't expecting anything or even looking for anything no. runs into an extraordinary event. Psycho is like that. Uh, yeah, Psycho is like the that. birds is is an extreme example of that. And North by Northwest is probably the the most mm-hmm. implausible movie that he ever made. Yeah. I kind of find it interesting when he talks about Psycho how he thought of it almost as like a comedy. <laughs> how do you mean? Like he thought like the whole situation away was kind of amusing to him. Like he didn't really think the situation the birds was as amusing, but something about like the just the setup and how events unfold almost have like a very darkly comic aspect to them. And yeah, I can because kind of see what he's saying. It, like, it's, there are parts it, of Psycho that are actually very funny. Yeah, and it's all about implausibility. It's nothing in Psycho is is plausible. Uh, the, the 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 things that it's happen, not impossible, but no, it's not impossible. It, but a lot of things are really playing on working on the audience's perspective like he also talks about a really great thing too and i think this is something that still holds up maybe even more so today 
is expectations of the audience. And this goes back to what we were talking about. Something different in terms of when we start off this whole podcast, this episode. Yeah. Talking about expectations of the audience. Audiences, and this is something Hitchcock talks about, they they are expecting things when they go to a movie. They they are ahead of the they think they're ahead of the storytellers. They know what's going to happen, A, B, C, or, or D. And so filmmakers have to work that much harder to try to subvert expectations. So, you know, a reason a movie like why Psycho is the way it is, like why it was so groundbreaking at the time, why it, why it probably still holds up today, is just the fact that halfway through the movie... Spoilers. You, if you don't know the what happens in Psycho, go... Well, don't spoil go, it go for read anybody. All right. In for Psycho... The, for the five people who haven't don't know what Psycho's about. I know. Or I, haven't but, seen the Gus Van Sant movie. Well, the point is, halfway through the movie, something happens shift. that nobody had... Nobody had a clue that was going to happen. And the fact is that Hitchcock actually gets you on the side of Marion Crane, who, you know, stole money to... Uh, you know, I guess to try to get like to be with this other guy, Sam yeah. Loomis, and and yet we're with her while she's committing these kind of terrible things. But we want to see, and then she has that conversation with Norman Bates and decides, all right, you know, I'm going to go back and give back the forty thousand dollars. Right. And and you think, and there's a thing in in a lot of films that I think uh, I heard um, what's his name, Rob Matsushita mentioned this uh, plot armor. Hmm, plot Have you ever heard that term before? I'm not sure. It's basically like in an action movie, you realize that the main character will not die because they are the main character. Yes, yes. Their, their part I, of the story is so important that yes, I, that I have that problem. This is what so much. because this is what prevents them from being killed. You know what movie I had a big problem with that in was uh, World War Z. Yeah, watching that movie, I knew from minute one, Brad Pitt's not going to die. Even when the movie tries to show me that Brad Pitt might die in this moment, no, he's not going to die. Yeah, he, or like he's, in the Lord he's, of the Rings, perfect. the the two towers. Hmm. I when when uh, Viggo Mortensen goes over that cliff in the middle of the movie, are yeah, we really um, expected to believe that he dies in the middle of the second film? That's true. I mean, some characters are just like that. They have so much plot armor that even if that audiences will see a fake out from uh, ten miles away. Yeah, and that's why you have to be really clever. Like there was another anecdote that I was reading in the book where he talks about. Uh, have you have you seen Strangers on a Train? No. Oh, okay. Well, I could just say that that he does talk about. Um, he has a whole quote that I found fascinating, where um, like Alfred Hitchcock brings up the fact that there are certain rules in a suspense genre. Like there are rules in suspense, and truthful asks him, like, what do you mean, what rules? And he says, like. You know, I'm talking about the rules of suspense. You know, that's why I've more or less had the field to myself. <laughs> you know, and... there are very few non-Hitchcock Hitchcock movies, mm -hmm. which you know mine that same vein that Hitchcock did. Like, no, I don't even think that nowadays anyone's ever come close to it. There are emulators. There are emulators, but there aren't people who have who have tapped into it the same way. The only other people, the only other director who I think has made a Hitchcock-like film who wasn't Hitchcock. Was um well Brian De Palma made a bunch of Hitchcock type movies. Yeah, but were they are they still the same? Like, have you gone out and seen all of those Brian De Palma films? Yeah. Because of that, well, you have. Okay. <laughs> Bad you question. You mean other people? What that? What's the name of it? That the director who made um Diabolique. Oh, uh, Clouseau. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's actually 
part, I've I've read that part of the re, part of the thing that intrigued Hitchcock with uh, Megan Psycho was to try to up. Uh, may, I don't know if this is entirely true. This up might the be ante. A rumor. Up the ante on the bathtub sequence in Diabolique, where they never bathe again. Yeah. Well, the the. I, I did mention. I've probably mentioned this. I, I, I think I know the story. You're you know, about. you know, a lady I thought, said, "I can't take showers anymore after I saw Psycho, and I can't take a bath anymore after Diabolique." And Hitchcock says, "Try the dry cleaners." <laughs> <laughs> There's another great Hitchcock quote I read. I read in a uh, book of insults, and huh. so an actress asked uh, Hitchcock. Oh well, I've, I've, he has so many good uh, insults. Uh, 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 an actress asked Hitchcock, uh, "Which side do you think is my good side?" He says. My dear, you're sitting on it. <laughs> <laughs> he has a great... Uh, there was this movie he made in the mid-40s. It was one of his... So, it wasn't really a full-on World War II movie, but it ha- was kind of the closest thing he did. He That and Four Correspondent and Saboteur were his war movies. Basically. Life, this movie, Lifeboat, uh, you know, where it's all... It's kind of like his a bottle film where right. everybody's it on a lifeboat. takes place on a lifeboat. And it's a really good movie. Um, there's this actress in it named Tallulah Bankhead, and ever like she apparently didn't wear underwear. Oh uh, yeah. While they're making the movie, and so like uh, a lot of the crew actually kind of got a look up her skirt. I think a couple of times when she was walking up like the stairs to the set, and Hitchcock remarked, "I don't know whether this is uh, a matter for the costume department, wardrobe, or hair, hairdresser, <laughs> or hairdressing." Yeah. Oh jeez. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know the thing about the skirt when I heard that quote first. Yeah. Oh, this makes much more sense. Yeah. Well, I think he knew that she wasn't wearing underwear on set. Um, as you can tell, Hitchcock had a very, very wry, like, in- incredibly good sense of humor, even though very dark in some ways. I know this probably isn't a real quote, but I I think of Anthony Hopkins in Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Try the finger sandwiches. They're made of real fingers. <laughs> Well, that sounds like something he would say, though. Yeah. You know, like, and he just very droll. I think um, they were making the movie Marnie, and uh, it was with uh, Tippi Hedren and Sean Connery. It was the follow-up to The Birds. Right. And in the movie, Tippi Hedren's character is supposed to kind of, you know, she's not attracted to Sean Connery, even though he's kind of trying to play on her psychology, psychologically speaking. Right. And Tippi Hedren went to Hitchcock and complained. She's like, I'm supposed to act frigid against that? <laughs> and Hitchcock's like, I know, my dear. It's called acting. <laughs> <laughs> and I think even and similar to that, I think Ingrid Bergman, she was doing some scene in one of the movies. Notorious. Yeah, Notorious. And she's like, I, I can't get this emotion. And Hitchcock just yelled at her, fake it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, with his, with this guy, he... And this book is fill, filled with quotes like that. Quotes I, like that, but also, like, if I were doing a film class, like, in terms of giving students, I don't know about required reading, but at the least supplemental material in terms of, you know, there are, there are books on how to make movies that are very technical, that give you the very much the, okay, this is how you open up your LED screen, this is how you load the film into the camera, there's that part of it. But then there's also... Look at the thing you're pra- shooting. Point the camera at the thing you are shooting. Push on button. Say action. Do the little clapboard thingy. 
Why aren't you teaching a film class? <laughs> no right, one's but, offered me. No, yeah, jeez. We we should we should do a straight we should do a stranger on a train. I do your job, you do mine. <laughs> Actually, I don't teach any film class now. But the point is, I would there would be two books. One would be Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, which is one of that that book was is really great. And then there's also this book, Hitchcock Truffaut, which you know I know not every young person is going to be seeking out all the Hitchcock movies. I mean, I still haven't seen all of them. Which, you whippersnappers. Yeah, you whippersnappers with your Game Boys and your hippity hop. But Hitchcock offers a, like, a lot of practical advice in the book and, th- and philosophy that is not bogged down in a lot of uh, bad semantics like it's not a chore to read this book it's he's not certainly not a chore to listen to no and it's not a chore to listen to it either but he just a lot of the philosophy that he brings about the process of uh, having talent or just also the moving image (laughs) he's also very hard on himself too like he admits when he thinks that yeah he's not he's not just soaking in Truffaut's fanboy vibes he's uh no and he disagrees with him a lot too He's mentioning a lot of his faults and uh, the things he sh- says he should have done better. Yeah. He's, uh, he's pretty candid about what he thinks he's done wrong. Yeah, and I there are times where I think you're being a little hard on yourself, but that's you know that's what happens when you are a, a creative person sometimes. Oh, I yeah. mean, especially when you're learning, too, on the job. Um, and he... Uh, that's, that's, I think, what holds a lot of people back, like... Uh, creatively, they want to make something, and they're like, "No, it's got to be perfect." And then when they finally do that one thing, they're just like, oh, "I can't, I, I can't do it this way." And then they never finish because they're obsessing about details and things like that. And yeah, they think it has to be great. And uh, people think like, "Oh, Hitchcock's had." I'm sorry. And of course, you can feel that way about certain things, but you know, at a certain point, you just got to do it. Mm-hmm. And you got to put it out there, warts and all. Yeah, and he again, like the book. You know, you go into it thinking, all right, he's just going to talk about this movie and that movie. But they go into a lot of the mechanics about filmmaking and about um, of what an audience wants out of emotion, like in an experience of going to the movies. I mean, uh, and that sometimes it is actually important to simplify things for an audience. Hmm. You know, maybe sometimes they can take things, but he talks, for example, about the man who knew too much, um, that, you know, if you if you can't convey an emotion to the public, unless you can't convey an emotion to the public unless you feel it yourself, you know, like, mm. um, you know, directors who lose control are concerned with the abstract and, you know, these vague preoccupations prevent them from concentrating on specific problems. And, you know, I think that can be a problem sometimes for certain filmmakers. I think Michael that's Cimino. <laughs> Michael Cimino. Uh, and, I, that's something I have to wonder if certain filmmakers here and there are kind of called Hitchcockian, and I think critics don't really know what that means. Like, uh, I'm not sure people. I'm not sure that it's overused as a term. Like Christopher Nolan has been called Hitchcockian, and I don't really see that at all because Hitchcock he sometimes his movies could have a lot of people talking, but he really more so valued visual. Yeah. Over that. I mean, you watch Rear Window, and so much of that is just watching these things happening across the street silently. That, you know, I mean, yeah, Jimmy Stewart's there in the room and he's kind of narrating, but, you know, you're, that's, he's trying to gain your eyes to look at these things happening and hold your attention. 
Yeah. Uh, also, like Rope, there are just scenes where people are talking off screen. Yes. Um, while while uh, the camera is focused somewhere else, mm-hmm. and the scene is playing out very suspensefully. Uh, in the uh, blah 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 blah. Yeah, yeah I know like that. Saying. Like Hitchcock said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's interesting too to hear, a, like, I, again, I read also another couple, a couple other books about Hitchcock. Like I read the Making of Vertigo, and this book, A Life in Darkness and Light, was one of those big biography books that I, that was like a project for me that I was really happy to dig in and read. And uh, it was at one point in this book he talks about how. Uh, here and there he talks about like things sexual in nature in movies and how one thing he'd love to do one day is have a sex scene, but it involves two people on opposite sides of a room and they expose themselves to each other. <laughs> and, uh, he, his final movie was this movie called family plot, but originally he wanted to do one more movie and he'd worked on a script for this thing called the short night. It was like another spy type of story. And but in the script, in the biography, it talked about how Hitchcock has seen written in there where two characters are on each side of the room and they pleasure themselves, and it's like a love scene, basically. Because huh. he, I think he was talking about in relation to the movie Notorious, where there's a scene in that movie where Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman are kissing, and he choreographed it in such a way where Grant and Bergman were very uncomfortable. <laughs> in the position they were in because they had to walk and move and then kiss and hold it in such a way that was very uncomfortable. But Hitchcock had, like he said, I, I don't care. I have to get this exactly the way that I see it. Right. You know, I don't care about your uncomfortableness. You are going to do it this way. And and he talked about Truffaut the way that, um, you know, it's difficult to kind of revolutionize or do something different with a scene involving two people having love for one another like that. And... You know, you can't have them on separate sides of the room unless they open themselves up to each other. And that's where I think that idea comes from. But uh, he also had a lot of different weird ideas. Like he, on North by Northwest, he originally wanted to do this set piece where um, you sh- you show a car being made in a factory yeah, in Detroit. Yeah, I remember this. And you, it. you see like each part being put together and these two people are talking about something and they're coming down the conveyor line. And then the car is put together, and one of them opens up the door, and you see a dead body come out. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about implausibility. That's uh, that's one of those type of moments that, again, the whole idea that you, uh, because it's satisfying on the level of cinema, that it's working on your emotions, that it's trying to work you in that way, you can try to given a little bit of implausibility like i i think that without in a weird way i think without hitchcock we wouldn't have david lynch you know aside from you know yeah he was a he's a surrealist filmmaker but you know i think a lot of what hitchcock did kind of has seeped into stuff that somebody like lynch has done too Hmm. that'll be interesting as i watch uh as i watch my lynch movies this week because i think uh, lynch is a huge fan of vertigo too like he presented like some screenings of Vertigo in the past, and and that's a movie too that I think I, I can I go back to that each time, and even though that doesn't have the ambiguous ambigu- no ambiguity of the birds, 
there's still a lot of depth in Vertigo. I've yeah. I've revisited that movie several times over the years, and each time I see it, it's very it's like, psychologically complex. It's psychologically complex. I feel differently about Jimmy Stewart in that movie each time I see it, and I feel differently about. I mean, I feel it's kind of the same, but I see different things each time I see it. Um, about that conveyor belt scene, I can't help but think that somebody somebody heard, read that and then wrote the script for Minority Report. The conveyor belt scene. Oh, you mean the one I was just talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have to think, yeah, Spielberg probably wanted to try to do that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. may have been an homage to Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah. There are... Homages to Hitchcock are, you know, so present in the world. I mean, it's, uh, um, you know, I mean, aside from, again, Gus Van Sant's Psycho, which I think we talked about when we talked about the Hitchcock I think we movie. only briefly... Uh... Yeah, I... In a weird way, there's a part of me that... It's a terrible movie, but I... I understand why it was made. I do think, like, Gus Van Sant in that moment was, like, going back to film school... And he was basically doing on a big budget what I did with you that time. Remember years ago for my film school, I, I had to recreate a scene from Duel? I think so. Do you remember yeah, this? Yeah, I remember You were in my car, now. and I had you doing different things. And it was for an editing class. Yeah. And, and you um, used uh, little little toy trucks to uh, put this scene together. Yes, to illustrate the actual cars. I used toy trucks. Yeah. But I used you as the guy in the car reacting to the truck following him. Yeah. I feel like that's what Gus Van Sant was basically doing with his version of Psycho. Um, I mean... Le- yeah, a least necessary film exercise we've ever seen. <laughs> Yes, very yeah, very least necessary. Uh, but again, I can't stress enough how valuable this book is. Just it's very funny. Often uh, there are a lot of interesting anecdotes. There's this whole story about Hitchcock when he was making his first movie called The Pleasure Garden, and uh, like I, thought, he had I found no it money. interesting his. His, uh, talking about all the stuff he did uh, when he was working on silent films, he didn't. Yeah, he started as a started guy as a who drew who drew who drew the t- the title cards for films. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, anytime in a silent film you see uh, a uh, you see a scene cut to a shot of a bunch of words, mm-hmm. I mean, that was what Alfred Hitchcock did for his studio. Yeah, yeah, he did that he, for the studio, and, you know, drawing little pictures in order to illustrate things because silent film was a little more ad hoc back in those days. Yeah, he kind of came more from the word world of drawing, I think. Yeah, um, from art, uh, art school, I believe. Yeah, right? and I think that's it's interesting this when that you see a filmmaker like that. Uh, certain filmmakers have come up through art school and. Their careers have kind of gone well. They usually end up being very visually minded. Like, well, Ridley Scott was another one. I will never argue <laughs> about the visual merits of Ridley Scott. Yeah. I will, however, argue. I'll argue about his choice in story. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, But to close let's... this out, I think, I don't know if there's what else I could say about the book exactly. Let, except let that... me, uh, let, I think I could put the button on this. Sure. Uh because there's so this, much cuz there's so reading much this, you you'll get a, a very deep look into Hitchcock's methodology, his philosophy in filmmaking, but it's not all technical, it's not all philosophical. It's fil- filled with great anecdotes, filled with great quotes, uh filled with interesting questions and filled with great attitudes about what the cinema is or what yes. and if and what 
Hitchcock thought cinema should be. And you don't have to agree with everything, but if you at least look, but studying the way Hitchcock saw it, you can't really go wrong. No, you can't go wrong with that. And also with the way the Truffaut saw it through him as well, and tried to bring up a lot of good questions and at times just have a conversation about what it means to try to present in this medium what it what 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 does it mean to try to do something good or do something bad what does it mean to try to fulfill your vision if you have one if you have kind of a step-by-step process what happens if you cast the wrong actor oftentimes hitchcock sort of blamed himself for you know like i i miscast that person he wasn't mm-hmm. really cast well and so you get a lot of insight and again i, I can't stress enough how you know, going into this, if you're worried about Hitchcock being full of himself or Truffaut being full of himself, it's very down to earth in that way. Um, if Hitchcock and Truffaut did this today, it would just have been a podcast. <laughs> it would have been I a think podcast. That's, uh, yeah. I think that's a great way to finish up for tonight. Yeah, that's a good way to finish it up. Uh, and of course, if you're interested in watching any of the Hitchcock movies, there are a lot of them out there. Uh, he made 53 feature films. Oh, and also I should mention that his work on Alfred Hitchcock Presents was uh, really quite good. Uh, he did one episode in particular that um, involved Joseph Cotton, where, I don't know if you've heard about this episode, where he, Joseph Cotton's this guy who gets into a car crash, and he is in like a state where he's not dead, but he's kind of like momentarily paralyzed, and he can't move. And so the whole episode, you hear Joseph Cotton's mind still working, but everyone thinks he's dead, and they're about to, like, kill him for good. And uh, um, even though he's not dead, and he doesn't know how he's going to tell somebody that he's dead if he can't talk or can't move, and it's uh, it's really terrifying. <laughs> um, but yeah, so check it out. There are a lot of movies available in public domain. Some of them look like crap, frankly, because they're kind of bad prints but look uh, you're not gonna have any trouble finding a hitchcock film no you're not you th- you throw a rock and you'll get a copy you walk into 7-eleven you're bound to find a hitchcock movie among like that bin of used dvds they have there yeah it's quite possible yeah so, so anyway Jack, so we next got week, plans coming up we do uh i think should we tell them about our sort of idea we got coming up yeah all, all right. right come on so, Avengers 2 is coming out. Avengers 2 is coming out. And, and we got nothing better to do. We're going to watch it. We're going to watch we're it. we're going to podcast about it. We're going to podcast about it. And we may have some special guests, a couple other people to chime in Nobody with you know. Nobody you know, but you know they, they're still good people. Uh, in the meantime, I'm still going to you know be watching movies and reading about movies. Um, how about you? But my I have a plan that in sometime in the next week or two to watch Das Boot. Okay. The full uh, German series. Uh, well, it's a movie, but it's like the uncut version. Right. And uh, a couple other movies. In terms of... Uh, uh, there are a couple movies by this director that I want to watch. Uh, you could maybe... Say, I don't know if they'd be surrealist or absurdist, but... Uh, did you Have you heard of Rubber? Yes. It's the movie about the killer tire? Yes. Yeah. There are a couple movies by the, the guy who made that. His name is Quentin Depew. Uh, I just have to say it like that. He made a movie called Wrong, which I like to watch, and then he made another movie recently, which I may see tomorrow night, called Reality. So I'm going to see Wrong and Reality. 
right. I'm going to ramp up for a surrealist episode. So yeah. I'm, uh, I'm keeping the, keep an ear I'm out for David Lynch. I'm going back to the beginning with, uh, with Man Ray and whatever, whoever the hell else was that, and Dali and Buñuel. Yeah. I think I'm going to try to check out, I was recommended this movie called Daisies. Um, I don't know that much about it, but I hear that it's surrealist in some way, and so I might check that out on my Hulu. And I also have because a... that's what it's all about. It's about going back to see the crazy stuff and then realizing whether or not it works. Yes, and realizing. So if you want if... to see if anything else works, you can go check out our website. <laughs> you can check us out on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com/slash the wages. Uh, not the wages. SoundCloud.com slash Wages of Cinema. You can also check us out on iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. And also on and Facebook. And not only can you do that, but you can write a review, you can rate us, you can comment. Yes, please do that. We'd like to hear what you have to say. Also, we're on Facebook. You can check out our Facebook, because uh, I will actually be posting clips, and I have been posting videos uh, if you hear us talking about a movie, if you go to our Facebook, you'll very likely see one of the clips from a movie. Right. And uh, and also, I set up a Tumblr page, and I'm going to see about working with that pretty soon. And if you have films you want us to talk about, films you haven't seen, want recommendations, send us a message. Us a note. We'll yeah. talk about it. And uh, and if and if we don't want to watch it, we'll watch it anyway, because that's what we do. Yeah, basically. We're here, we're ready to believe you, as the Ghostbusters would say. Um, I don't know if that Haven't works. seen Ghostbusters? Watch it. Yeah, all right. Maybe. All right, so until next time, uh, I hope you come back and listen to us. We've had a fun time talking with you, and uh, I don't know what else to say, Andrew. Why I know what else out? to say. The wages of cinema is death. Have a good night. Peace. Peace.